Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Claire and of course you are listening to, you know, what I reckon will be 30 minutes well spent of some of the best science that you will hear this week. And uh, with me this week on Lost in Science, we have Chris and Stu. Hello. Hi, Claire. Hello. Hello. Now, what have you brought for our dear science listeners this week? Chris. Well, I like to retread old topics. Uh, You know, I'd like Mm. to do that. Mm. Um, This actually isn't me necessarily retreading follow-up stories. This is just like a story that it keeps on giving. Something we talked about a while back is space junk. Oh, I mean, it keeps on giving because, it, uh, you know, we keep on adding to it. We do, I, we am do. Am I right? We do keep adding to it. And as we've discussed before, it is kind of becoming more and more of a hazard for life in space, as seen in the Sandra Bullock movie, Gravity. Love that film. Yeah. It's becoming more of a risk on Earth as well. I don't know if you've noticed that there were recently some debris came down in a sheep paddock in the Snowy Mountains here in Australia. Yikes. Yes, and there has been more coming down in other countries recently as well. And so there has been a paper published recently that looked at the, I guess, the risk that this poses and who is most likely to be affected by this risk. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not the people who are launching the rockets mm, who are in the, the firing right. zone. There is increasing risks and there is, uh, yeah, it's kind of discussion of what to do about it, I suppose. And so, yeah, I'm going to be looking at what this level of risk is and, yeah, what kind of, what can be done about it. I'm just looking forward to someone inventing some way to get all that space junk to the space tip. There is a tip. There is a tip. (laughs) There is a tip? (laughs) Yeah, there is a tip. Uh, (laughs) And... It's uh, it's connected to HP Lovecraft, but no, uh, no spoilers there. <laughs> right. Wow. Right. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, stay tuned for that. And uh, Stu, what have you got for us? Anything intergalactic or otherwise? Well, no, but speaking of HP Lovecraft, it's probably something a bit more um, ancient and and creepy and uh, uh, slithering. Look, uh, uh, you know, it's one of those things, you know, we always, or I always like to find the biggest things and the smallest things and the fastest things and the slowest things. I'm actually looking at the world's biggest bacteria, which... I didn't which, know that's where you were going to go with that. Great. No, I mean, it was it was quite surprising. And this was actually only recently discovered and recently written about, but this is... Um, it's it's kind of a real. I wouldn't. I, I don't want to say it's a missing link in the evolution of life, but it is. It's something that is a bit unusual for a bacteria, but it's 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 an extraordinary bacteria, and I'll explain what's so extraordinary about it and and why it's captured the attention of uh, a whole lot of biologists around the world. It's actually big though, too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like, quite large. Yes, and I'll, I'll like large I'll, as a Volkswagen. Well, not not that large. 
Right. Okay. Well, uh, you're going to have to hold out and stay tuned to that story to hear exactly how big the world's biggest bacteria is, because Stu is not going to give it away in the intro, are you? Oh, hell no. No. (laughs) Brilliant. All right. Now I've cleared that up. On with the show. So, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and look, uh, I'm, fi- I'm fairly old, I think we've established that on here, um, and when when I was a kid, I remember when Skylab came down. Do you guys remember I, Skylab? I remember that. For people who weren't born around the same time. Skylab was the first American space station, the, the Soviets had had space stations before then, this is the first American one, and it was pretty cool looking, it was kind of this... You know, big kind of cylindrical thing, but with windmill-shaped solar panels. And you know, as a as a nerdy kid, I love to read books where they talk about Skylab and think that there was a space station up there and people do experiments and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty cool thing to have up in space. But of course, it didn't last. Uh, and in 1979, it uh, what they call deorbited. It okay. came down. It it fell down. It fell down, yeah. And it was a big Intentionally or non-intentionally? Uh, intentionally, and it wasn't going to stay up there forever. But, I mean, it was also, it was uncontrolled falling. So they kind of, they tried tried to aim it as best they could. But, um, yeah, no one exa- knew exactly where it would land. Um, and this was uh, obviously big news, international news. And as a young kid at that time, it was terrifying. I remember, like, going outside <laughs> and looking up and imagining, is this thing going to land on my head? Yeah, of course. Is it going to crash into would. your house? Dude? Exactly, exactly. Um, of course, it didn't actually hit anybody, um, but some of it did actually come down in Australia, uh, and ultimately the Shire of Esperance in WA gave NASA a $400 fine for littering. Really? Um, I remember that, and also... Also, there was there was radio stations giving away prizes if anyone could get a bit of Skylab and bring. Yeah, them. yeah. Um, and I remember we, we we were every time we'd go outside, we'd look for like bits of things <laughs> that could have been. Is this from Skylab? Is this from Skylab? But no, so you can make a bit of money. Them. And did it end up sort of scattering across the globe, or? Um... Yeah, like most of it was in the Indian Ocean, um, but yeah, some of it landed in Western Australia as well. So they're kind of aiming for a bit closer to South Africa, but. Yeah, it fell short a bit. But, um, yeah, that was kind of the most kind of famous event. But, you know, it's it's happened before. And it's like, you know, I guess it's, um, the way this happened shows the difficulty in controlling these things and also keeping the people who launched them accountable for um, for these things coming down. So under... Um, Are you saying that a $400 fine, Australian dollar fine, isn't uh, keeping NASA accountable? <laughs> well, okay, so... Under international space law, it states, uh, I love the fact there is such a thing as space law. Um, <laughs> I a do launching, too. I'm learning so much tonight. A launching state shall be absolutely liable to pay compensation for damage. Now, as far as I can find, this law has only been applied once when uh, in 1978, a nuclear powered Soviet satellite came down in a remote area of Canada and they sent Russia the, the bill for the cleanup, essentially. Um, so that's only the time that I could, like I said, find this is, you know, this liability has been applied, but this actual 
happening more and more that things are coming down. So apart from the recent strikes in Australia that I discussed in the introduction, um, in May 2020, there was some wreckage from the 18-ton core stage of a Chinese Long March 5B rocket that hit two villages in the Ivory Coast and caused damage to buildings. Again, didn't hit any persons. Uh, and also, you know, recently, there's another Long March 5B rocket that was allowed to an uncontrolled fall to the, towards the Philippines that I think might have just landed in the water, but it was kind of getting very close to, uh, yeah, to the islands there. So, yeah, this is happening more and more, and a recent paper published in the journal Nature Astronomy calculated the risk based on current practices and what we know of the discarded rocket stages that are currently in a low Earth orbit. So, you know, these things, satellites are launched by rocket. The rocket usually kind of stays up there for a bit until it comes down. Um, so they looked at the numbers of objects where they're orbiting and the world population distribution and calculated that there is likely to be a 10% chance of one or more casualties over a decade, which doesn't sound a lot. That was a 10% chance of one or more people being killed by a rocket ten, over 10%, the next decade or so. 10% is not really a small number, though, when you're talking no. about No, it's not. It's not. Um, it's it's not a small probability, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I was saying, I was saying the numbers aren't big when you consider that currently have currently have a global pandemic that is killing, like, upwards of 14,000 people a week worldwide. Um, but I think the thing here is who is considering who is being put at risk and who is actually causing the risk. So due to the nature of the orbits of these rockets, it's mostly areas close to the equator that are going to be affected. Mm. That is like area countries in what we call the global south, which has been, I think, misreported a little bit. I've seen some reporting that says it's the southern hemisphere that we most affected. Um, I'm misunderstanding the term global south, which kind of refers to the countries who are not the, the northern altitude countries, which is where most of right. the world's wealth is pop- is um is concentrated. Um, but it's basically the same old story of the developed world dumping their problems on the developing world, essentially. And, you know, I think that now that Australia has started to launch rockets from our territory, you know, we are basically count ourselves as one of those launching countries. And so we're not the innocent party here either. So, yeah, it's not surprising that there hasn't been a great reaction from some of these launching countries. Um, there was an article, I found an article in the South China Morning Post which talked about this. Now, this is a Hong Kong-based publication that um, has more recently been accused of becoming more pro-regime. It had a striking claim. Uh, first of all, I said, the chance of humans getting hurt is infinitely close to zero, which is mathematically uh, questionable, way to put it, I guess. Yeah. But they went on to say, they quoted Harvard astrophysicist Jonathan McDowell, the prob- probability of a rocket hitting a person after it falls to Earth is just one in a few billion. Which sounded very different from our other calculations that I mm. quoted earlier. So I wondered about this and I looked it up and I found a number of statements from Jonathan McDowell talking about this kind of risk. And what it seems, he's talking about the risk to an individual person. Um, like, you know, oh, right. me with Skylab. So essentially, if you take that early calculation, that like there's a 10% chance of someone getting hit. He's saying, well, there's 8 billion people in the world, so you've got like a 1 in 80 billion chance of being hit. So that's the number that they're using. And he's quoted that figure quite a few times. That's and they quite have put that different as, when you yeah. think about how many people there are in the world. Exactly, exactly. But I think a few people also are falling for this kind of arithmetic situation. Uh-oh. So yeah, look, it is a problem. Um, and now there are standards that launching countries are meant to follow, but they're either very vaguely written or, as is often the case, I think in America, they're often waived due to the extra expense 
um, it's just too difficult to reduce your risk. Some of these measures include things like, you know, saving fuel for a controlled re-entry and then aiming at an empty area of ocean. So, for instance, there, a popular place is Point Nemo, as it's sometimes called, in the Pacific Ocean, which is 2,700 kilometres from the nearest land. Um, 2,700 kilometres is the distance basically between Melbourne and Perth. It's a long way from anywhere, and it has become a very popular spacecraft graveyard. Of note that it is close to where H.P. Lovecraft located the hiding place of Cthulhu, uh, in his stories. Uh, and yeah, and we're dropping rockets on it. I mean, we can get back to Cthulhu, but um, have we gotten better at bringing crafts down than we did with, than we have been in the past with like Skylab? Well, certainly the technology is there. Um, yeah, we have better accuracy at, you know, controlling flying objects, I suppose. The trouble is that it's the, the cost of doing it. So you've got to save fuel. You've got to carry some extra fuel up with you. Plus, um, they often like to use that extra fuel to get the, the satellite a little bit higher to, to, to its destination. So it doesn't have to have its own fuel to get where it's going. So you're kind of asking people to spend a little bit of money to be good citizens. And that's a bit hard when they're not the ones who are going to be affected by it. Mm. Um, there's also the possibility of reusing rockets. I might have seen SpaceX with their landing rocket. But... The uh, the recent debris that came down in Australia was from SpaceX, has been identified. And with the volume of satellites they're going to be launching, with their kind of swarm satellites, there's a lot more rockets and a lot more debris coming from SpaceX, even though they are developing the, the technology to reuse rockets. There's going to be a lot of non-reused rockets coming down from them as well. Uh, but there's other risks as well. Even the satellites themselves pose their own risks. So there's another recent paper published in the journal Earth's Future, which talked about how... Objects, when they're re-entering the atmosphere, release chemicals that can further deplete the ozone layer. Uh, and the rockets, when they're up at those high altitudes, release soot that contributes five, about 500 times more to global warming per mass than surface emissions. So we're basically polluting the upper atmosphere and we are dropping things on the Earth. So, yeah, look, I think that, um, yes, your individual risk is still very low. It is, it is um, several billion against you being hit by something. Um, so you don't need to be worried like me with Skylab. But um, this, as I said, this is a risk and this sort of pollution and danger that is, is not borne by those creating it and they should be held accountable. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's... Uh mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. You are listening to Lost in Science, and I want to ask you, what is the smallest living thing you can think of? It's not well, meant to be a trick question. Uh, yeah, but... No, no, no. I, I mean, I think it's a bacteria, right? Yeah, it because is. Because viruses aren't living. Technically, oh, that's a good point. Technically, non-living and viruses are quite a lot smaller than bacteria as well, but they are—they're just fragments of DNA, basically, or RNA that gets you know that hijacks the mechanisms of living things to make copies of themselves. But bacteria are fully living; they can reproduce, they uh, they can you know they they consume things, they respire, they do all sorts of activities. So, if you you know, bacteria are the smallest living things we know of, and compared to 
compared to other living things, they're pretty simple organisms. So, yeah, how are they different to like other single-celled organisms? Because they are a single cell, aren't they? That's right, and they can sort of form colonies, and you get sort of you know basically slimy lumps of bacteria that are all the same bacteria. But um, so the the cells of bacteria are very small. So they appeared on Earth a long time before anything else was living here, and they are present in the fossil record dating back 3.8 billion years, which is pretty old. It's, you know, just a little bit younger than the Earth, basically. The oldest known rocks are 3.8 billion years old, so they've, they've kind of got bacteria there in the oldest rocks we've ever found. Um, as I said, they're also very small, so they range from about 1 to 2 microns, are the smallest ones, and are usually about 5 to 10 microns long. You could fit dozens of individual bacteria on a single human skin cell, for example. So what, what is a micron, Stu? A micron is a thousandth of a millimetre, I believe. So yeah, very, very small. A micrometer is, is how it's okay. defined. But these are tiny, tiny little things. And as I said, you could fit lots and lots of bacteria in a human cell or in a plant cell, for example. And because they were around for so long before other organisms evolved, they actually diverged into two kingdoms of organisms. There's actually two kinds of bacteria. There's archaeobacteria that are really, really ancient, and there's eubacteria, which are more modern than the archaeobacteria. But to us, it's, you know, neither here nor there. They're both very, very simplistic organisms. They're called... Uh, they're what we call prokaryotic organisms, and they're much more simple than other kingdoms like plants and animals and fungi and protists, which are other single-celled organisms that are all, all sorts of things. Basically, the, the protista, the kingdom protista, is what has well what I've always called the, the third drawdown kingdom. It's where they shoved everything that they didn't fit into the, <laughs> any of the other kingdoms. It's the third drawdown where everything goes that doesn't fit somewhere else. So so people talk about good bacteria and bad bacteria. Is one of the kingdoms the good bacteria and the other one the bad bacteria? Is it that simple where you let them fight? Or No, there's no, there's no, there's not an evil kingdom and a good kingdom of bacteria. Uh, <laughs> the, the, some of the bad ones are in the older ones and some of the good ones are, you know. It, <laughs> very, very few bacteria are actually bad um, most of them don't cause us any problems at all. It's a fraction of a small fraction of a fraction that a few troublemakers. Yeah, it's always yeah. a few, few troublemakers. You know, ba- it's not bad. they aren't bad to the bone. They're just just some bad behaviour. They are. They're just misled. <laughs> but so in in bacterial cells, they're so they're co- they're such simple cells. They've basically got a membrane around the cell, and inside that is all of the stuff in the cell. It's just all kind of sloshing around in there. Um, they're just little sacks of bioactive ingredients, if you like, uh, including their DNA. So their bacteria do have DNA. They're, they're living things, and on Earth, all living things have DNA. Some have RNA only, but mostly DNA. And the DNA is kind of just sloshing around. In eukaryotes, which are the more complex organisms, the cell has all kinds of organelles which have their own membranes around them. They have specific functions, and the DNA is contained in a package called the nucleus in the middle of the cell as well. So they're much more complex cells, these later evolved cells in those other kingdoms. Um, But because of the relative lack of organisation in a bacterial cell, their size is limited. Anything the cell needs, it has to basically absorb from the outside world so they can't get very big 
because they don't have any transport mm. systems inside. So they kind of just glom onto things it's, that it's they want to absorb. It's a limiting factor for them. Absolutely, and it limits their size to be so so tiny. And they and they have to disperse anything they they need inside the cell with no real transport mechanisms as well. So they can't get much bigger than they already are. And this does explain why they've been relatively unchanged for so long. I mean, they are very successful. They're perfectly adapted for what they do, but they are stuck being so small because they don't have effectively the cellular machinery to get bigger. And the way you go hunting for bacteria is with a microscope. They're just so tiny. It's not really possible to see them any other way. Well, usually. And this is where we get to the big bacteria. And we're talking quite a lot bigger than than the micron sizes. So uh, a recent trip collecting water samples among mangroves growing in the Lesser Antilles in the Caribbean has revealed a new kind of bacteria, which is quite unlike any other bacteria that's been previously known. For one thing, you can see it with your naked eye. What? so the that goes against everything. They're not even microbes. You just said change the whole way you think of bacteria, but they're not microorganisms anymore. If you can see them with your naked eye, they're That's right. they're macrobes, not microbes. So the scientists who discovered it thought they were some kind of protist or other some other kind of eukaryote, like a fungus or something, possibly. Until they investigated further uh, and and had a look at them more closely. So these bacteria are 50 times larger than any bacteria previously recorded. And they are about 5,000 times bigger than an average-sized bacteria. So to put that in context, (laughs) 5,000 times bigger than something. So imagine a housefly, you know, a little housefly that you get in your house. Mm 5,000 times bigger would be a housefly the size of two buses. (laughs) That's that's 5,000 times bigger. So this is. So how big are we talking in terms of like microns and millimeters? Yeah. Well, but these are in these are in the millimeters. So these are like you know uh, almost a centimeter long. That's how big (gasps) these bacteria are. Yeah. So you can see them. There's a there's a photo on uh, one of the stories about these where you can see them, and there's the edge of a coin, and you can see these bacteria. They're long and skinny because they're still limited in sort of uh, size in one direction, but they are very, very long and you can see them with your naked eye. So, Stu, how do they do it? Well... And where do they get the money from? Where do they get the coins? <laughs> that's what. That's how why they, they got so it? big, how... so they could pick up coins and move them around. <laughs> no. How can they grow that big? So, this is the thing. So, this is a supergiant bacteria. It is a bacteria. It's genetically a bacteria. It's also internally different. So the DNA in these bacteria is contained in an internal envelope, more like eukaryotic organisms. Oh. So it's it's got almost a, or a similar kind of structure to a, a nucleus, a cell nucleus, which bacteria just don't have, uh, but these ones do. So they've got their DNA in these internal envelopes, and there's also evidence of ribosomes contained in their own membranes. So they've got what are very simple organelles inside the cell as well. So that makes them much more complex than than other bacteria around. So is this some sort of species that's sort of like a transition between a bacteria and a protist or a eukaryotic cell or something like that? Like well, some sort of evolutionary 
midway point? Well, this is this is what I said in the in the intro as well. Is I wouldn't want to say this was a missing link, but it could potentially give us a better understanding of how these simple bacterial cells got more and more complex. And this is kind of a, a couple of little changes in a bacterial cell allows it to increase in size massively, you know, sort of a couple of orders of magnitude bigger than what they would have been without these changes. So the changes themselves are quite amazing. They've also found, you know, just the fact that they are bigger means that those changes give it some sort of advantage over other bacteria and allows it to get bigger. So they've actually named the the bacteria Theomargarita magnifica because it's a magnificent bacteria. And according to the paper published in Science in June, it's many times larger than the theoretical limits for bacterial cells. So it was hypothesized that you can't get a bacterial cell bigger than a certain size because they didn't have the machinery to be able to get that big and stay functional. Um, they've also got a massively high degree of genetic diversity as well. So there's multiple versions of all of the genes that the bacteria have uh, at a very high rate or high degree compared to other species of bacteria. And this is, you know, this possibly also explains why they've changed so much is that there is this high degree of diversity in there. So, you know, as I said, it's not, it's not a, a missing link because it's not, you know, the missing link is kind of a bit of a myth, but it may suggest ways in which very simple organisms like bacteria uh, could have adapted and become more complex, which allowed them to get bigger and gave rise to all of the cool stuff that we have in the world now with our fungi and our plants and our animals and our protists doing all their crazy protista stuff. And it may lead to a better understanding of how these complex eukaryotic cells evolved uh, and how internal changes to function led to increasing size and the explosion of microbes on Earth that were more and more complex until we got to us. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight@gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.